Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker, and week by week we read through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a much gifted and very gracious man of God, blessed by the Lord and equipped and enabled in his generation to serve the Lord Christ particularly as a pastor, preacher and evangelist there in the 19th century primarily. Today we're looking at a sermon that was delivered on the 18th of May 1862 and it's a a particular occasion in the life of the congregation there because Mr Spurgeon has a friend in the congregation, a man called Jean-Henri Merle d'Aubigny a Genevan pastor and an historian of the Reformation. And we'll say a little bit more about him as we come to the end. The sermon, as it's entitled, is called An Exhortation and a Salutation. Spurgeon provides the exhortation, Mel Daubigny the salutation. This is number 450 in the sequence of sermons that we're reading. And if you're a regular, you will know that we read not only a sermon day by day, but that each week there's a featured sermon which gives us an idea of the breadth and the depth of Spurgeon's ministry. So this week we're reading sermons 444 to 450, and our featured sermon is this exhortation and salutation. So uh, the sermon text that Spurgeon is preaching from on this occasion is 2 Samuel 11 uh, verse 1. And it came to pass, after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem." Now, again, this is one of those texts where you might read it and say, where are you going to go with this? How are you going to get a sermon out of this? Spurgeon does it by zeroing in on that last phrase, that David tarried at Jerusalem. It's a circumstance, he says, that's so significant that the Holy Spirit has recorded it twice, because in the parallel passage in the Chronicles, you'll also find this declaration that David tarried at Jerusalem. Spurgeon's point is, and this is another one of those sermons that falls firmly in the bracket of exhortation to service, is that David had become careless. He was indulging himself. And having nothing good to do, says Spurgeon, the enemy found him awful work. For the tempter planted straight before his eyes a fair temptation, into which he rushed as a bird to the snare or a bullock to the slaughter. Idleness, says Spurgeon, was the mother of the mischief, and if you trace to its bottom the foul iniquity that has made the name of David a special mark for all the Lord's enemies, you will find it had much to do with his not going out to battle when the country required it, when the season commanded it, and when no affairs of state justified his absence. So Spurgeon is zeroing in here in on the fact that David was waiting at Jerusalem when he ought to have been doing something else. And so, he says, you will readily perceive the subject of my address. First to the individual Christian, and secondly to the church, as God shall help me, I will utter warnings against that deadly lethargy which is so apt to steal over us, putting us into a position to be readily assailable by temptation, I and to be easily overcome by it too. 
Now, one of the reasons why I find this sermon so valuable to me at this point is because as it's being recorded, uh, I'm sitting here at the end of a season in the life of my own country uh, and the life of the church of which I'm a part and which I serve, where we've been through lockdowns and limitations societally. And I fear that the church, together with society, that the church perhaps drinking more deeply of the spirit of the age than we should, as is too often the case, that we have become subject to a certain measure of lethargy and listlessness, that we've been uh, for, for so long kept from doing certain things that we've developed a kind of spiritual inertia. And I think there is a danger then to my soul, I imagine also to yours and to the churches of which we're a part, that we need to be very aware of. So Spurgeon then is addressing this to his generation. I think it's particularly relevant to our own also. And he's got, uh, rather than, as he typically does, three points, these two main thrusts. First, to the individual Christian, and secondly, to the church. Now, he's actually going to spend most of his time in this sermon on the individual Christian, but he's also got some very forthright things to say to the congregation as a whole. And then he gives a chance for his friend uh, Jean-Henri Moldobigny to speak uh, right at the end. So, working through, he says, first of all, to you, brother in Christ, I speak personally. Now, there's several thousand people in front of him, and he's trying to drive into the individual conscience of every single person who's sitting before him. And to the individual Christian, then, he wants to direct attention to the season at which the temptation to idleness came upon David. Then he wants us to see the tendencies abroad which cooperate with the dangers of the occasion. So not just the circumstantial dangers, but also the, uh, the other challenges alongside of those which we always face. And then he's going to look at the consequences of David's tarrying or waiting at home when he should have been out and working. So first of all, then, uh, our special attention is directed to the season at which this temptation to idleness came upon David. And Spurgeon identifies a number then of these circumstantial realities. Temptation has ceased to harass you. David was uh, assured of faith and, uh, and resting in a measure of comfort. He was at the height of his prosperity and he was indulging himself in all the luxuries of life. So let's look at what Spurgeon says. David never refused to go forth to battle while he was harassed by his adversary, Saul. So long as he's hunted like a partridge upon the mountains, as long as he's under pressure, as long as he's being persecuted, his character is spotless and his zeal is unrivaled. There's a, a, a sparseness about his life. The priorities are clear. But now David is enjoying a measure of of comfort. And says Spurgeon, it is a dangerous time to you when temptation has ceased to harass you, when Sp Satan has left you in peace, and when you've placed your foot on your adversary's neck. A time of ease can be a time of danger. We're not saying that we despise ease. We're not saying that we seek out persecution. But, says the preacher, while the devil assails you to the, on the right hand and on the left, you will hardly be able to rest upon the couch of carnal security. 
the dog of hell by barking in your ears keeps you awake, but when he shall cease his howlings, your eyelids will grow heavy unless grace prevent. When you are no more driven to your knees by furious assaults from hell, you may experience the still more terrible trials of the enchanted ground, a little reference there to the Pilgrim's Progress, and you will have good cause to cry out, Lord, let me not sleep as do others, but let me watch and be sober. In other words, spiritual combats keep us on our toes, just as uh, David's conflict with Saul kept him alert. But now David has also obtained the crown, and it's sitting soft and secure upon his head. Now, says Spurgeon, we, we love the idea of a full assurance of faith, of real confidence that we are God's and God is ours. But, he says, while that is our strength and our joy, you need to recollect that there is a temptation connected with those circumstances. It's easy for a Christian to say, well, I'm saved, I've no doubt about it, the crown of my salvation encircles my head right royally. Interesting there, if you're a preacher, how Spurgeon sort of takes the uh, the, the crown that David wears is an uh, illustrative example of the crown of assurance upon uh, a believer's head, the crown of salvation. And he says then, yes, we bless God for full assurance, but remember, nothing but careful walking can preserve it, by which he means a close and careful watch upon our souls, a steadfast and principled obedience. Full assurance is a priceless pearl, but when a man has a precious jewel and he walks the streets, he ought to be much afraid of pickpockets. And when the Christian has full assurance, let him be sure that all the devils in hell will try to rob him of it. And so there's this counterpoint that we need to be aware of, that if the Lord gives us this sweet and settled sense of salvation, that that is a very precious thing, but it can lull us into a sense of false security and take us away from our close, careful, principled obedience to God and allow the devil then to get a foothold. Then again, says Spurgeon, this temptation to idleness uh, came upon David when he was at the height of his prosperity. He's 50 years of age, the year of his jubilee, and everything goes on jubilantly. He is prospering in all his works. And, says Spurgeon, when a Christian prospers, it's an ill time or a dangerous time for him unless he be upon his watchtower. When a man is poor, sick, or he's going through a trial, he has need of grace. But when he's rich, when his business succeeds, when his family are in good health and all is well, then he has need of grace upon grace. We can become careless, we can become lazy, we can become self-assured when things go well with us and just gradually by degrees drift away from our closeness to God. And to complete the hazard, says Spurgeon, David has now the opportunity of indulging himself in all the luxuries of life. He's living in the palace as a king. He's no longer a shepherd on the hills. He's no longer pursued through the caves and the mountains. Everything is his, and his soul grows lean while his flesh was pampered. Now, I think what's perhaps particularly significant for us is that this is the normal picture of the life that most of us are accustomed to living. We may not always think it, but we have it easy. 
We really do. Most of us have all that the heart could desire with regard to the stuff of this life. Spurgeon's point is that that was when David was particularly prone to this lethargy, to this listlessness, to this spiritual carelessness and indulgence. And so this is why I find this so pertinent, so pointed with regard to my own soul and the souls of the men and women whom I serve. This is where we are. This is the life that we lead. This is the the spirit of entitlement that characterizes our age. And Spurgeon, I think, would be warning us if he were a pastor today, watch out now because you have comfort, you have ease, you have prosperity, you have luxury, you can sit at your ease and you need to be wary that this does not betray you into laziness and lethargy. And so says Spurgeon, I know that my sermon is pertinent to some of you. He's speaking to men and women, real human beings who are sitting in front of him. People who've drifted away from their first love and their early vigour. Why, there are some of you, he says, when you joined this church, were as earnest as you could be. And where are you now? There are some that were prominent in the prayer meeting, but how often do we see them now? Are there not many among us as miserly towards the Lord's cause as if they didn't care a rush for it? You will say, I am personal. That's a a fairly typical charge against any faithful preacher. You're you're being personal. You're, You're picking us out. Yes, says Spurgeon, brothers, I mean to be and I want to be. And if you feel that this is your case, instead of being offended at the honest rebuke now offered to you, solemnly thank God that it comes home to you. Earnestly retrace your steps. Be no more sluggish and sleepy, but for the sake of him who loves you with an everlasting love, once more cast your souls into his cause and go forth to fight your Lord's battles. Here's the Christ-centeredness of Spurgeon's exhortation. You've been saved by the Lord Christ who gave himself for you. Think of him, Christian. Think of what you have received from him. Think of whose glorious cause you serve. Away then with your downy dozings and your comfortable slumbers. Lord, arouse us by a thunderbolt from heaven. Arise, arise, you slumberers upon your soft couches. Spurgeon's urging each individual Christian, think of who you are, think of whom you serve. Do not be betrayed by your ease, your comfort, your prosperity and your luxury into growing careless in the service of Jesus Christ but there are further dangers. Again, under this first main heading of the individual Christian, Spurgeon says, don't just think about your circumstances. Remember too that there are certain tendencies abroad that cooperate with those circumstantial or occasional dangers that will also lead you into the same vice as David on this occasion, which is that of slothfulness. Brothers, he says, what would the flesh do with some of us but make us, if we, would not, if we would let it have its way, as idle as Solomon's sluggard. Now, we often comment in this podcast, and if you've read anything of Spurgeon's life, on what a prodigious labourer he was. Listen to him. I do confess there is perhaps no man living that has a stronger temptation to sheer idleness than myself, although I am no boaster when I say I labour as hard as any man in either hemisphere. 
Alas, for this body of sin and death, it is hard for a man to serve the Lord aright while imprisoned in it. What he's saying is, instinctively, he is a lazy and idle man. And I think perhaps people might look at him and say, oh, come on, not Spurgeon. Look look at what he does. Spurgeon knows his own heart at this point. His labor for the Lord is not just the instinct of a naturally diligent man. It's the, the child of devotion to God in Christ. He says, and boy, is this true as much today as ever it's been, enthusiasm is not the tendency of Englishmen in matters of religion. Uh, Woe unto us that that should be the case. And therefore, only the Spirit of God can give the tongue of fire and the rushing mighty wind to the assembled disciples. The flesh lusts continually toward inaction. That's our instinct. The inertia of matter reaches its height in the corruption of humanity. The flesh will drag you in the direction of lethargy, not in the direction of service, sacrifice and diligence. But not just your own flesh. Then there's the devil. The devil will sing you a lullaby and rock your cradle if you want to sleep, for he does not love to see God's warriors on the alert. Satan doesn't want God's church up and doing, doesn't want any Christian awake, alert and engaged. He will dose you with a drug if he can, because then you're as useless as if you were chained and manacled. So you've got the flesh, you've got the devil, you probably know what's coming next. You've got the world, a great tendency to make you cold and dead. Perhaps you find this yourself. You indulge in a, a certain course of reading or, or watching. Uh, you, you, you fall into company with uh, ungodly people and spend time with them and begin to engage in their activities. And what happens? It brings you down. It dulls your soul. It takes the edge off your endeavor. I would give nothing, says the preacher, for that Christian who loves to be in worldly company. I think if any man can find himself quite at home with ungodly persons, he must be one of them. And if even with merely moral persons he can find a settled rest, surely there can be nothing of the high and aspiring nature within him that belongs to the true-born heir of heaven. We need to be wary, especially if we are in an environment, in a situation that throws us in perpetually and constantly with ungodly people and fills our minds and hearts with the stuff of this world and concentrates all our energies on things that are passing. Spurgeon says that will take your spiritual edge off. And you know what's perhaps even worse? He's going to add something. The world, the flesh and the devil, that we almost expect. Brothers, says the preacher, I'm sorry to add one more thing, that even association with some portions of the church of God in its present state may cool the ardour, the fervency of piety. I think that perhaps this is one of our great battles today. Ecclesiastical lethargy is perhaps one of the greatest stumbling blocks to young believers, says Spurgeon. I am not staggered by the world's indifference to religion, for I can understand it. But the indifference of the church to the progress of Jesus' kingdom is an enigma which one cannot solve, and many a young, enthusiastic Christian has had the noble spirit of Christ all but crushed out of him by seeing the dullness and deadness of older saints who seem to be pillars in the temple of God. And perhaps you feel this with regard to your own circumstances and your own situation. 
I, I say to my own shame that I, I, I might be tempted to say to a young convert, don't learn a spirit of service by watching us. And brothers and sisters, that not ought not to be. Any Christian who is newborn, you should be able to point to any member of the church of Jesus Christ and say, serve as he serves, serve as she serves. And it might be it's an old Christian and they're weak and they're weary, but look at their spirit, look at their fervency, see how they do whatever they can do. Rather than saying, don't learn of Christ from us, for we are, we're, we're feeble and we're, we're thoughtless and we're cool. And yet how often it is that we see fervent young Christians and they're ready to do something for the Lord Jesus. And rather than be lifted up to a standard of a fervent pursuit of godliness and piety and endeavor, they just sink down to the low level that so many of us seem to assume is the natural course for a Christian today. Oh, says Spurgeon then, give us back the glorious days when the church was a pillar of fire and when every new member was a new coal added to the glowing mass. Brothers and sisters, if you're Christians, part of a church of Jesus Christ, let's take pains that we live in such a way, not that we would boast with a Joab, come and see my zeal for the Lord, but that we'd be able to say with an apostle, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. But we need to rush on with Spurgeon. The third point under this uh, individual dealing, what happened? What was the consequence of David's tarrying at home? Spurgeon says, you think it's a small thing to be doing nothing? It's a great thing and will be a damnable thing unless God give you repentance. By waiting at home and giving himself up to sloth or laziness, David was losing his usefulness and his honour. He was losing his communion and his joy, and his conscience was being hardened. These are terrible consequences of laziness. You cannot be idle and have Christ's sweet company. It's a beautiful image here. Christ is a quick walker, and when his people would talk with him, they must travel quickly too, or else they will soon lose his company. Christ, my master, goes about doing good, and if you would walk with him, you must go about upon the same mission. If we become lazy, slow, dull, inactive, we will find our communion with and our joy in Jesus Christ drifting away and will become hard in our conscience. Laziness is one of the irons with which the heart is seared. When, when we're lazy... When we, we become cold and careless, the terrible thing is that often one of the things to which we most object is anything that then stirs us up to endeavour. We, we resent these kinds of exhortations. Spurgeon says, get slothful, do not fight the Lord's battles, and it will become not only easy for you to sin, but you will surely become its victim. He, he gathers some of this together. My dear friends, we don't exhort you to serve Christ to be saved by it. David was saved. He's speaking now to those who are saved and he begs and beseeches God's people take notice of David's fall and of the sloth that was at the beginning of it as a warning to yourselves. Some temptations come to the industrious. He acknowledges that. But all temptations attack the idle. 
Idle Christians are not tempted of the devil so much as they tempt the devil to tempt them, says Spurgeon. And he says, where are you at now? Where, where are you at? What, what, what's your, your current pitch of, of devotion and service? There was a time when you would have gone over hedge and ditch to hear a sermon, not minding standing in the aisles. But now the sermons are tedious to some of you, although you have your soft cushions to sit upon. Then if there was a cottage meeting or a street meeting, you were there. Ah, oh, now you say, oh, that was wildfire. Blessed wildfire, says the preacher. The Lord give you the wildfire back again. For even if it is wildfire, better wildfire than no fire at all. Better to be called a fanatic than deserve to be called a drone in Christ's hive. And, and I feel, and I fear, that as we go on in our Christian walk, we start to learn some excuses as to why we are not any longer serving the Lord as we once did. You know, now I've got a, a husband or a wife. Now I've got children, family responsibilities. I've got a home to take care of. I've got a, a career to develop. I've got a job to do. I've got chores that I need to engage in. I, I, you know, I'm not as strong as I once was. I'm not this, that, or the. Friends, I, I feel those things. And I know that some of you will do the same. But are these excuses to be any less devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ? No, they may give us new spheres of service and new avenues of opportunity, but these things cannot become our reasons for no longer serving with devotion and diligence. Spurgeon talks to those, and he says there are some in this congregation who grudge to give of their substance. They're, they're not generous with what God has given them. Aren't you ashamed to see how the Lord's other servants serve him? Well, this is provoking stuff. Yes, because sometimes the zeal of others just gets our goat. It annoys us. It frustrates us. It's a rebuke to us. But Spurgeon says, let it be a proper rebuke and let it stir you to serve him afresh. Oh, I want the Holy Spirit, he says, to lay these matters to your hearts. Not just a man telling you to consider them, but the Holy Spirit stirring you that you may sleep no longer, but being of the day may do the day's work until the day shall end. And, and he's, he's pushing on. That's the individual. And now the whole church and he's very pointed here. I'm not talking to churches generally. Most of us love a good exhortation directed to somebody else. Most of us applaud a rebuke that we don't think is relevant to us. But, says Spurgeon, I'm not just talking to the individual Christians in front of me. I'm talking to this congregation of which, at this point, 2,000 members or so are sitting in front of him. Other churches, well, if you're a stranger, a visitor, a member somewhere else, he says, just, you know, glad you're here, but this isn't so much for you. This is to the people who belong in this place. It seems to me, he says, that to us as a church, the temptation to sloth is very likely to come, for we are very much in the same condition as David. Saying it's eight years since we, we really had some of the first battles of our youth as a congregation. And he's saying the same circumstances that attended David individually are now attendant upon us as a body of Jesus Christ. Where once we were jeered, now we're applauded. Where once we were pilgrims, now we're settled. While once we were considered wild innovators, we're now considered good examples. And that peace and 
plenty and prosperity that we have enjoyed may allow us to sink into the easy respectability of other congregations and assume that therefore all is now well with us. He says, I'm not rejecting the peace. I'm not unthankful for the mercy. I, I don't despise the unity that we've enjoyed. But here we are now, and he's, he's there preaching in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the, the beauty of that church newly uh, constructed, the church building newly constructed. And he's saying, this could be a danger to us without a grand object before our eyes, imperatively demanding self-sacrifice from each one of us as this object did, without some enterprise which we can all lay hold of and feel that we could give our last shilling to carry it out successfully, we are apt to grow rusty, to lean upon our weapons instead of using them, and to withdraw from the Lord's host instead of rushing on to battle with the shout of men who mean to win the victory. That pause after combat that can be dangerous. Spurgeon feels that perhaps having given themselves to a great work, now there's a temptation or a tendency to say, well, we've done our work. We've, we've finished our labor. We, we've worked and now we can rest. No, says Spurgeon, give us back again all the noise and the confusion and the strife. Let us have once more the coldness and the harshness and the evil speaking of the entire church of God if we may but have our early enthusiasm and earnestness for Christ. And he's really picking up here some of the same things he said individually and saying it can work the same way congregationally. There are tendencies that make this church sleepy. We come frequently into contact with professed believers who will throw cold water upon every effort. Nothing has changed. There are still many believers who will say in effect, oh, sit down, young man, sit down, uh, Christian, sit down, pastor. Why are you getting so worked up? Such people, says Spurgeon, seem to think that doing anything for Christ is a work of super erogation. It's, it's above and beyond anything that's required of us. It, it gives us sort of extra credit, but it's not necessary. And there's a tendency in us to go with them and to say, OK, let's just calm down. Let's sit down. Let's slow down. Let's not upset the apple cart. Let's not worry anybody else. Spurgeon says, such churches degenerate. Lethargy and apathy creep in and cripple us. So what shall we do as a church then? Remember, he's talking to a congregation in front of him, and we might say the same to the people that we serve. Let us take heed to our footsteps, every one of us, and be doubly careful. Let us meet together in greater numbers for prayer. No, it's not, well, we don't have anything to pray for anymore. No, let's pray all the more. Let each man feel more and more his individual responsibility to Christ. Now's not the time to be saying, well, you know, we're at ease. Other people can take up the burdens. Let's weigh the awful necessities of this huge city. Yes, says Spurgeon, we've got a building, we've got a place, we've got these prospects before us. Let's not forget how many souls need to be saved. Let us put out every energy and use every agency that can possibly be employed for the regeneration of this dark, dark land. He says, the old Scotch commander who spoke to his soldiers when he saw the enemy coming, and he probably did an accent. I, I think Spurgeon did quite a lot of accents. This was his brief terse speech. Lads, said he, there they are, and if you dinner kill them, then they will kill you. If you don't kill them, they will kill you. And that's the nature of spiritual combat. 
If you do not put down lethargy and sloth, if you do not strive against popery, infidelity and sin, they will put you down. There is no other alternative. You conquer or you die. You live gloriously or you fall ignobly. The same is true for the church as a whole as it is for each individual Christian. And so with a final word to those who are not yet in Christ's army, that they must come to him before they serve him, Spurgeon concludes. And then, and we must be as brief as Spurgeon and, and Merle Daubigny were, he turns to his friend, who is this Genevan pastor, Jean-Henri Merle Daubigny. And he is a pastor and he is a, an historian. And I thought it would be valuable, first of all, just to give us a little glimpse into the life of the tabernacle under Spurgeon's ministry, but also into the ministry of this man. Oh, my dear brothers, he says, grow in love to the brothers and grow in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this man, if you can get hold of his writings on the Reformation, then you must do so. There's a multi-volume work on the Reformation in Europe. It is outstanding. Uh, there's a, uh, a selection of that on the Reformation in England, which is superb. There are other individual bits and pieces. There's a, a, a volume called The Triumph of Truth, and it's Merle Daubigny's writings on the life of Luther. But this is a man who sees the hand of God in history. And so often, as, as is the case, he says, I, I don't really speak English very well. And then he goes on to speak it so wonderfully and tells us love to the saints and faith in the Lord. You see, Merle Daubigny is a wonderful example of that spirit which Spurgeon has been commending, a man who has served the Lord Jesus Christ. Look up his own history and how the Lord served him, uh, saved him, and how he now goes on to serve the Lord. And he's serving him in Geneva, where the, the truths, the gospel of John Calvin had, had long since begun to dilute and to be liberalized. And, and Merle Daubigny is in the center of that place, and he's preaching again the good old doctrines of salvation by grace through faith because of the sovereign power and love of God in Christ Jesus. Well, these two then are examples for us. Here is a charge to our souls, and God willing, next week you'll join us again for our next sermon. Uh, our featured sermon next week is 454. It's called Sunshine in the Heart. It's about delighting in God. But let's not forget what we've heard today. This danger about lethargy, dullness, slowness, apathy. As individual Christians and as members of churches, let us not fall into the same trap as David did on this occasion. But heed the warning, heed the word of exhortation, and learn to do whatever our hand finds to do with all our might out of love for Jesus Christ and an earnest desire to see his glory in the earth. Thank you for listening, and God willing, we'll meet again. God bless. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information and to read along with us week by week, Follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. <laughs>